Welcome to Amplify. Music from composer Anya Malin, her solace in bulk for guitar, performed by Kathleen Kultai and marking St. Bridget's Day as part of a special CMC salon event held on the 1st of February. We'll hear more about this event later in the episode. Hello, Yvonne. Hello, Jonathan. So, new year and a new series in the podcast, and we have some exciting plans for new episodes, which we hope to bring to listeners over the coming months. And we start with conversations with two Irish musicians based in the US, composer Donica Dennehy and clarinetist Carol McGonnell. Yeah, I suppose for this first episode, Jonathan, we wanted to really keep in touch with some of our artists active in contemporary music who are living uh, around the world. And, and as we both know, contemporary music from Ireland is part of the global new music community. And so many of the composers we represent and the musicians we engage with are, are based abroad. So we wanted to see what they're up to, especially, you know, at the moment with the still ongoing, challenging times for, for everybody in the arts. So we began uh, with uh, Donica Dennehy and uh, he's been living permanently in Princeton in the US since 2014 and he's part of the music faculty there but uh, he had also spent 2012 there as a global scholar so he's been resident in the US for quite some time now. He spoke about how he's had to take stock of that um, because he has always thought of himself as being rooted in Dublin. Now our chat meandered through lots of areas of life and music as you might imagine. His turning 50 last summer Vile concerts, countertenors, staying fresh as a composer and collaboration. And given that we're turning the corner from the darkness of winter into springtime and a time when we see rebirth in nature and a time for us to explore new ideas and new directions, I began by asking him what new music he was working on and any new directions he's taking as a composer. Well, right now I'm, I'm writing an opera. My third was Enda Walsh. We sort of decided we'd do a trilogy. That's what I'm really working on right now. Can you give us any sneak previews of what the uh, narrative of the opera might be? It's one of those, like, Enda and I now have written kind of three semi-thrillers, semi-operatic thrillers, in which I would say the dystopian rubs up against the utopian. I don't want to give too much away, but we're hoping... Uh, and this is one reason I'm furiously writing it now, that we're hoping that we actually can put it on this year, maybe. But, you know, who knows? I mean, this has been such a kind of uncertain time, the most uncertain time I've ever known. You know, you think something's going to happen and it doesn't happen. You think you're going to stay in your house all day long. That does happen. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, can I say much about the, let's say it's it's someone who was, she was bullied at school by somebody and there's the consequences that recur later in in their life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like this vicious circle. That's what the kind of opera is about. So I'm interested, yeah, as, as, you, as you've referred to, this is the third opera that you have written with Enda Walsh. And so uh-huh. by all accounts, it's a very positive, creative collaboration. And what makes it so positive and so productive for, for you as the composer? Uh, yeah, it's weird because um, we don't even talk that much about them when we're doing, we just sort of deliver our parts to each other. And it's like we know we sort of know where the other one's going to go in certain places. The communication between us is very fast. That's what I would say. We we know the kind of layers instantly between us in, in the way he does his words and the way I do the music. And there's just something that really works out. Uh, you know, it's it, it's very difficult to predict these things in advance. You know, we've all had collaborations where you think, Oh, I'm really excited about this, but it hasn't quite worked, hasn't it? Hasn't clicked. But there's something that just clicks between Enda and me. And um 
it, it's hard to know, but it's been a very, very fruitful uh, collaboration, and and I'll miss it. This will be the end of it now. This we're we're just doing the three, and we kind of decided at that instantly. We were kind of rehearsing the last hotel, which was the first. Uh, this one's called the first child, by the way. So they kind of go, it's the last hotel, the second violin, it's the first child. So you know. We also like these kind of stupid jokes that are underneath the tragedy of things, too, uh, and that we share. Yeah, so you can never really predict the way you're going to click, but there is something that just clicks. Also, I think we both love each other's stuff. (laughs) It's kind of weird. You know, that helps, a kind of enthusiasm for what the other person is doing. And we have a flexibility in our way of working. You know, Enda is always very free with my cutting text and or you know, j- rejigging stuff around or, or or even like I might ask him for some extra stuff here and he'll he'll just, you know, write it up. And, and likewise, when we're in the rehearsals, I will cut stuff or rewrite stuff. You know, we're, we're ready. We're working on it right till the, it goes up, you know, so, so that we sort of fine tuning it. Yeah, I find them, they're exhausting things to write. Absolutely exhausting, but addictive, yeah. composer well as a mere mortal it's certainly very important for me to have routine so I would imagine as a composer having that big work to get your compositional teeth into so to speak is kind of a blessing at this time yeah it is you're you're so right actually it's the one silver lining of this for me I've had a few big works I've been really working on and I've been able to burrow down and just concentrate on them and not have to move, really. I haven't really moved since March of last year. So that's sort of given a, a focus. I mean, we're all cooked up here in the house, you know. The kids are doing homeschooling. It's crazy. That's so hard for them, actually, to be doing lessons over Zoom. But yet it has been a real... I've been able to sink my teeth into these large pieces. I also wrote a, a violin concerto. I I love writing large pieces because you can really go into the world to them, you know. Actually, sometimes I really don't like writing short pieces. <laughs> I mean, I do them and they're fun. And, and nowadays I think of them, oh, they're like etudes for me. I want to think of a certain compositional problem or teach myself to do something better. About a year ago, I felt, oh, I need to freshen up my approach, you know, because you're writing for a long time. You, you settle into a way of doing it. And, and so I <clears throat> I went back probably the first time in 15, 16 years into looking at little processes, you know, um, algorithmic things, which I hadn't done in so long. And I taught myself this uh, program from EarCamp, uh, Open Music, where I, which I had known a little bit, but I know it much better now, to, to just, you know, think about the way I develop material. Or, or, or the elaborations on material. And actually, I didn't take certain commissions even earlier this year just so I could clean my head to, because I wanted this space to, to really investigate what I was doing with the material. I'm interested, Donica, when you talk about the, 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 the processes and, and this sort of refresher. I mean, that's, that's very interesting. And the, the EarCam program, Open Music, and, and how you've used it. Um, do you do you think that you know, kind of in your in your sort of subconscious, this was a case of sort of reaching a fairly big birthday during the summer last year that you you had this kind of impetus to to do this kind of refresher? All the artists I really admire are ones that attempt to stay keen at any stage in their life that they're that they're not like oh, this is just my trademark now and I'll try and maintain this and you know and you can feel the work getting tired artists that I really love like you know Stravinsky or you know Bach Louis Andreessen you know the way they 
they always keep going back, pushing themselves to do more. And yet, you know, you hear it's their voice entirely. I feel that that was within me anyway. Yes, maybe turning 50. And also turning 50 in this weirdest year ever, you know, where nothing's going on. In a way, having the removal of all that outside makes you focus in and, oh, what you're really doing. So that, I suppose, combined with reaching 50. Yeah, believe me, me, when you hit 50, it goes through your head. Oh, my God. 30 years, to, well, you know, if you're granted that, you know, to 80, which is like 30 years previously is, is like 20. Oh, my God, I remember 20 like it was yesterday. And that was pretty fast moving. And so it is kind of terrifying. Time is something that I'm terrified by anyway. It's a big issue in my music, I think. Like the whole way that it's one linear move towards to death, you know? And you don't know really where that's going to happen, unfortunately. And um, and then we're sort of struggling against that. We're creating importance against that awful kind of almost deterministic directionality of time. And like time, like circular versus linear time is something that's a huge issue in the way I think about music and life. Because you know, I, I, I really love circular time. I love, oh, you wake up and it's a beautiful day. Uh, oh, the evenings are slightly lengthening now. All this kind of stuff. I love it. It gives me great joy. But then there's the other aspect of time, which is just terrifying. And when you hit 50, you're aware of there's a collision between these two aspects of time. It's kind of shocking. How did I get here? <laughs> Only yesterday I was like 37. 50 is, is an important milestone, as, we, as we've discussed. And, you know, when you kind of think on your body of work so far, are there pieces that you're kind of particularly proud of? I, I imagine the operas, you've, you know, we've, yeah. we've, we've covered that. But are there other works that really you say, uh, what was the Debussy um, letter to Ravel about his one and only string quartet? Don't change a single note. Actually, that's I didn't know of that letter, but that is true. It, it, Debussy wrote that to Ravel, was it? Because I think uh, that the quartet hadn't been given such a good um, review for, um, by you know some of the the Paris uh, Paris crew, and oh, wow. uh, Debussy was trying to uh, console Ravel, and I think the the quote is something like you know don't change a single note. Yeah, well, that's very nice of Debussy one. Because uh, to say it to another composer, uh, because I'd say some composers, you know, are sitting back going, aha, maybe they'll change it because it was perfect. I, yeah, there are pieces that I, 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 I'm very proud of, uh, other than the operas, as you say. Uh, I'm very proud of Grog's Boss. I, 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 I think I, that I really, I feel, feel I really hit something in that piece. Um, I, I've, it's it's weird. I even the, the other day I heard an older piece of me in O for orchestra, and I thought, wow, actually, Jesus, and I was only like, that's a terrible thing to say about your own music, but you know, I've kind of forgotten it, and I was only uh, thirty or whatever when I wrote that. Me doesn't want to look back, so I keep that kind of level of energy with the newest work. The, the set, I mean, you say not to mention the operas, but the second violinist, I'm also really proud of. And then also, there's a piece of mine, I don't know if it's ever been done in Ireland actually, it's called Tessellatum.
I wrote it for this wonderful viola player here in America called Nadia Sarota. Who, she's not only a viola player, but she's also like an incredible force for good in new music in this country. But she's a damn fine viola player too. Her and a, a guy called Liam Byrne, who's actually Irish, but he hasn't spent much time. He really grew up between, I think, America and England. And I'm very proud of that piece because I, I really, it's this 40-minute piece that really is its own thing. You know, I didn't, you know, Nadia was really just write whatever you want and we'll figure out a way of doing it. And they multi-tracked it in this. When we first did it, it was just the two of them playing. So it's really for like four violas and 11 microtonally tuned viola de gambas. <laughs> Bach would love that. We... You know, we recorded it, and, and um, uh, but now I've made a purely acoustic version for string orchestra, which we did just before the lockdown with just the students at Juilliard there in New York. I thought, Jesus, will anyone ever be able to really play this? And they nailed it. They were amazing. Just these uh, students, they were amazing at doing this um, new acoustic version. So it was Nadia playing solo and then just these uh, students. And... Yeah, so that's another piece. I'm interested that you talk about Tessalatum because um, I suppose this has kind of struck me over the last uh, couple of years, um, especially, I guess, since the second violinist. And, um, you know, I see that you you have a, a work coming up in March that, fingers crossed, might be able to be performed in Bruges, which is for countertenor and viol consort as well. So we've touched on on Liam there and, and his uh, wonderful gamba playing. So, you know, and, and of course, we've touched on Bach and, and you know that I have a particular fondness for, for that period of music as well. And so this kind of... J- Jeswaldo was very much a, a, a part of, of the second violinist. And then we have the, these viol consort pieces and, and a countertenor now slipping in for the first time um, in this new work in, in Belgium. So I, I'm, I'm sort of hearing certain influences and, and, and certain um, preoccupations um, for you as a composer. Yeah, I have a huge burgeoning interest in early music. Uh, you know, I keep on going back to certain er- early music sources and just finding stuff there. I really am interested in the music that's sort of pre-common practice harmony, you know, where counterpoint was kind of on the edge. And there are these amazing pieces, you know, by people like Ockegem and where you have masses of voices that almost, it's it almost can sound like some sort of incredible textural piece. Along with this kind of new interest in these kind of like little mini processes in my music that I'm doing with this open music thing. Now, you know, when I use open music, I'm almost embarrassed to say it because there are these kids all over Europe, especially not so much. Uh, it's not as big a thing here in, in, in America who can program open music like nothing else. It would just look fantastic. And they're doing all these kind of like Markov chains. And the way I'm using it is much at a lower level than that you know i'm i'd be embarrassed to show these guys my patches because i'm like it's not anything fancy it's just like a way of speeding up what i would do often i write it on paper and then it's a way to be able to modify it seeding it with different ways whereas so it's not like it's although it shows me some things but it's not like fancy but concomitant with that has been this real interest in what I think of is almost like kind of strange broken processes in medieval and Renaissance music. And I am fascinated. And I'm, I suppose I'm becoming also a little addicted to the sound world of it too, you know, with the vials and, and I have a countertenor in my new opera too. So just so you know, uh, so I'm actually writing a huge thing for countertenor right now, you know, so when we finish, I'm going back to this whole world of the, countertenor. So how have you found that? I mean, it's it's actually one of my favourite um, voices, countertenor. So, you know, people like Andrea Scholl and, uh, you know, they're they're very much part of my record collection. So how, how have you found write, writing for a countertenor voice? Well, I have written before. I did write a piece way back, NMC for their songbook. I wrote a piece for countertenor and percussion called Swift's Epitaph. Thank you. 
nobody knows this piece, you know. I, I mean, I think they may have released it, but nobody's listened to it. So I did have an interest way back. A lot of these things are like you have an interest and you, you leave it for a while and then it comes. It's like I, I remember years ago seeing this really fascinating exhibition of Jackson Pollock's early works. I think it was in Italy. Just seeing where there were certain early ideas, which then he left and then he came back, you know, to with it. And it's like everyone has these things that they're German around and just just depends on what you decide to grab for a certain while. Yeah. So, I mean, I have had an interesting kind of counter tenor, that voice. I love the fact that it can go from a kind of, you know, most counter tenors are also tenors or even baritones, you know, so they have that low thing and then they can, they can then transform into this really high voice. And I love the transformative volatility of the voice or the kind of like volcanic capacity for transformation between those kind of two parts of the voice. I mean, actually, so this piece in Bruges, it's a vile consort and it'll be counter tenor. So I have been really interested in counter tenor voice. So I thought, oh yeah, I want to write for counter tenor and voice files, knowing that I was also going to write for counter tenor in the opera. That's going to happen. So they are going to do it. They know how they're going to do it. They're going to do it online. I think they're going to go into the Concertgebouw in Bruges and then just perform, I think, to nobody, but they're going to broadcast it uh, online. I can think of lots of times in my life where an, an encounter with a working with a musician really transforms the way I think. So one is like lean. I, I, when Nadia first approached me about Tessa Latin about writing this big piece, oh, I'd love to do it with Viles. And she said, well, I know this great viol player. He lives in London called Lean Byrne. I went to meet him. I was already there, you know, rehearsing one of the operas. And I just thought, oh, this guy is it's like a whole world. It's fantastic. And the sound was amazing. And then in Tessa Latin, I realized, because that was one thing, you know, which I had to work quite, heavily on when I did the version for string orchestra is that the vials have this beautiful transparency in the low end. You can put quite a lot in the low end on a vial and it still rings true. That's why you can have this beautiful counterpoint. Uh, it, there is this transparency, which you don't get with, let's say, even cellos and basses. You just don't get that. It has this amazing thing where you can have quite a dense, detailed low end where you can hear it's on the edge between counterpoint and texture. I, I love the instrument. I wish that this this instrument should really come back completely. I mean, it is back, particularly in, like the Netherlands, Belgium, there's all these great vile players. Uh, and, um, but yeah, so that's a, a vile concert, five vials and a counter tenor. Yeah, but there in that one, I don't, I don't play as much with the volcanic aspect of the can. It's more, he has a, it's more of a kind of, I do the more pure tones in, in that piece. In the opera, it's a different matter. Donica Dennehy's Tessalatum, ending that conversation with the composer recorded in late January. Next, clarinetist Carol McGonnell. And Yvonne, when I contacted Carol initially asking her to come on the podcast, I thought she was going to be speaking to me from Berlin, where she was living for most of last year. But it turned out that she was actually back living in New York for a few months. Yeah, it was great to to hear Carol's thoughts, I suppose, on, you know, the move to Berlin a few years back and then coming back to New York very recently. And, you know, as a musician, um, as a mother as well, you know, some very interesting insights in this interview, Jonathan, that you that you did with Carol. And, you know, she's commissioned hundreds of works, as we both know, from contemporary composers from Ireland and abroad. She's what I would say a super specialist in contemporary music and 
and, you know, a real ambassador for the art form and, and incredibly respected by the international music community. Um, I was uh, just reflecting that, uh, you know, she performed an early work of Dunica's Piffling uh, from 1991 in a, in a premiere in 1997, I think, at the uh, Bank of Ireland Arts Centre. Do you remember that? Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that in her commissioning and, and championing of Anne Clear's music with her ensemble Argento, she's really brought Anne's music to the attention of many artists and, and audiences and other ensembles. And uh, on our last promotional release, New Music, New Ireland 3, she, she featured on two works, Anne Clear's evocative I Am Five Woven and Ryan Malloy's haunting Cantarich. And uh, her enthusiasm for working with composers and her real generosity of spirit in terms of collaboration, it's really clear when she speaks uh, about it um, and being part of our recently launched CMC Contemporary Artists Network, where she's a colleague with composer Irene Buckley. And I was also reflecting, Jonathan, you know, certain certain concerts come back into my mind. Um, I imagine that lots of people are like this because we haven't been able to go to live concerts uh, for such a long time. And these kind of musical memories pop into our, my mind at, at different, they sort of rise up from the, the subconscious. And, and a really big highlight in recent years was the performance of I Am Five, that uh, work that is on our promotional release. I was at the, the premiere of that in the National Concert Hall. I think it was a live, uh, it was a lunchtime concert and Carol's performance was electrifying. It was um, a real jolt, uh, a real bolt of, uh, you know, creative expression um, for, from Anne and, and from Carol's interpretation of it. It, it really does stand out uh, as, a, as a highlight concert from the last few years for me. So let's listen to my conversation with Cara McGonnell now. Carol McGonnell. I'm a clarinetist born in Dublin. I've been living in New York for the past 20 years until actually recently. In the last couple of years, we've been between New York and Berlin. I'm married to an American, Michelle Galante, who's a composer and conductor. And we have two kids. We have a three-year-old and an eight-year-old. And the eight-year-old, when we thought about moving, she was five and she was in public school here in New York City. One of the things that was that really, really bothered me was that she was coming home periodically from school telling me they had to hide in the closets again. And I was like, what's going on with this hiding in closets? So I wrote to the teacher and asked her what she was talking about. And she said, oh, yeah, we have lockdown training every couple of weeks in case there's an active shooter in the school. And I couldn't deal with that. Like, I couldn't deal with my five-year-old having to do these tra lockdown trainings in case there's going to be a shooter in, in her school. The other thing was Trump being elected. You know, the next day I said to Michelle, look, come on, we have to get out of here. <laughs> and then the third thing was the health insurance situation here, which is a massive, massive deal for self-employed people. It's a huge problem. In, gener in general, it's a big problem, but particularly for self-employed people and for musicians and artists, it's a massive problem because you have to pay for your own health insurance. And the cost is just exorbitant. And it doesn't even cover what needs to be covered. So you end up fighting for every single bill. It was like a part-time job just to deal with health insurance for the family. The great thing is now we're kind of between both. We're, we still have our apartment here in New York. We have our ensemble here. Um, Argento is based in New York City. So we have this nice situation where we can kind of really be in both places. Um, of course, the last year we've primarily just hunkered down in Berlin. Um, but now we're, you know, we're thrilled to be back here for a couple of months. You mentioned Trump and the election and it being one of your reasons that you wanted to relocate to Europe. Now that there's a new administration in the US, will this make any marked difference, do you think, to the general new music, music scene in, in the States? It's hard to say from a very practical perspective, like the health insurance issue is a big thing. 
if universal healthcare was something that came to reality in the country, that would be an enormous game changer, I think, for artists. In terms of government funding for the arts, it's so minimal in this country. That's not the model that exists here. There is a certain amount, but it's extremely small. And most funding for arts organizations comes from individual donors. It's really hard to say if things would dramatically change or if things will dram- dramatically change now that, you know, Biden is at the helm. It's probably not the right question to ask in the middle of a pandemic uh, if any particular administration is going to make a change to to artists, you know, to art, you know, to, to an art form. But I guess it's more along the lines of maybe composers and musicians feel happier in in themselves with the particular change because i know for example i i spoke to one composer who's new york based and he told me that you know for a good two possibly more three years he wrote nothing because of trump yeah but that's huge jonathan you know I feel really privileged that, well, first of all, we were here when Trump, not, I don't feel privileged that we were here when Trump was elected, but to have the perspective of being here, you know, during that election and walking down the street that morning after the election and just feeling that incredible weight of depression. And and we were all just, you could tell, you know, everyone was looking at each other with just this, you know, despair. And so going through that and experiencing that, And then being here again now, back in New York for the inauguration uh, last week, I could very palpably feel this weight being lifted, you know, and I don't think any of us really realised what kind of stress we were under and what kind of stress the world has been under with the threat of him and his cronies. And, And certainly, you know, four years under Trump, I think we've, there's been this communal experience and communal trauma that's come from that and then also this pandemic as well you know there there definitely I think is is opportunity there to create and to connect um in kind of a profound way but of course I can also well imagine you know how people could be quite paralyzed by the circumstances too you know that's that would be very that's very understandable as you said, it's it's a it's an opportunity for uh, you know people to connect and collaborate and create. In terms of uh, your own collaborations and your own work, have, have have any sort of new partnerships or collaborations started up during this the last kind of nine or ten months? First of all, being in Berlin was great in the summer because things opened up a little bit. Concerts started again and venues opened up, and I so I did some work um, in Berlin in I guess July August. September kind of time and it was amazing you know going to rehearsal again and I was so grateful for every moment <laughs> to be in rehearsal and to be working and I enjoyed it in a way that I hadn't ever before just because the preciousness of it was just so apparent and I'm really looking forward to getting getting back to that again of course and then in a practical practical terms your initiative of the CMC initiative of getting performers and, and musicians together I think has just been well, such a such a bright light, you know, in this time and such a nice thing to kind of be thinking and planning ahead. And um, I've been in conversation with my composer, Irene Buckley. We have um, nice ideas that we were hoping are going to get out there and that we're going to make happen. So that's been a, a lovely thing to be working on. And I was really interested in trying to do something with Irene is that her sonic palette and the kind of worlds that she creates with her music these aren't worlds that are immediately recognizable to me in a way and that makes me interested in kind of understanding more and becoming involved with that more because that's interesting for me.
having time in one place, like not traveling around like a lunatic all over the place for concerts and, you know, always working on like the next thing, you know, of having time to like just really delve into projects has been unbelievable. I'm doing a big Fernando project at the moment myself and and it just takes so much time and so much practice time and having the space to be able to do that is, a, you know, is, is fantastic. A year and a half ago, I lost the hearing in one of my ears. It's called sudden sensory neural hearing loss. It was a huge crisis that happened and it's kind of universally accepted that the main cause of this is stress. And I've been traveling an enormous amount with small children and just trying to be superwoman and do everything. And um, it all just came crashing down when I lost the hearing and I thought this was it. You know, I thought I wouldn't play again. I thought it's all over. And um, anyway, I had to embark on a major journey to heal the ear and not just heal the ear, but to heal myself. So I had a period of time of about six months where I didn't perform. I didn't play really even for yeah the best part of six months. And, um, and then I was back for a couple of months and then the pandemic hit. So I kind of came out of a period of, of rest, I suppose, and you know and recovery and all of that and then back to work and then immediately then the pandemic hit I think my experience is a little different to people who are just like you know working 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 up until the last minute and then all of a sudden this happens you know I'd kind of had this experience of of this kind of time of reflection and time of healing and all of that so I've kind of continued from that but anyway the ear just as an update is 100% back and has been for over a year now. Um, and luckily I managed to come through that well. And But um, that was a crazy time. Gosh, that must have been so stressful. And so, so I mean, I, I can only imagine if you're, you know, you're contemplating not playing again. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the whole rug must have been pulled out from underneath you. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, um, it was terrifying, frankly. Um, and uh, I really went to the darkest place I've ever been. And then I realized if I stay in that place, I'll never recover. <laughs> and I needed to get myself sorted out. So I didn't let myself stay there too long. And I just went to, ev- did everything I could to, you know, to, to get back. And luckily, yeah, here we are. <laughs> You mentioned having conversations with Irene Buckley, which is part of our Contemporary Artists Network, which is a program my colleague Linda is running, which pairs musicians up with composers. Turning, you know, to the act of collaborating with a composer. I mean, you've worked with a lot of different composers, both Irish and international over the years. In your opinion, is there a set of conditions, particular conditions needed for a successful musical partnership? And if so, are you, are you more aware of, of, of what's needed now, you know, and, and, and sort of sensing when those kind of conditions are right? That's a big question. I think, like, clearly a major set of conditions, this is very, very practical, is funding. You know, that's, you know, a huge part. The You know, there has to be funding for commission, there has to be funding for performances to make to get the work out there and to do all of that that's a given and beyond that I think it's very very hard to say about a set of circumstances um I was talking with Irene actually about uh, our mutual friend Anne Clear who I've had a long collaboration with and I was telling her about how I met Anne first she came to a concert that I gave in Paris many 10 years ago I guess it must have been now after the concert, I told her about this new contrabass clarinet that I had bought. And she was so excited to hear about this and she wanted to immediately see it and hear it. And 
and she ended up writing a piece for it with Loud Electronics and and then it began a long collaboration with that spawned many, many works, her whole EM cycle, and came from that initial collaboration. So that's a situation where the instrument, you know, sparked this. Yeah, you know, of course we liked each other, and I guess she liked my playing. Um, but but really it was the excitement of around this particular instrument and um, that you know sparked her interest and her desire to start working. So it can be something like that. I think it can be it can be a shared experience. It doesn't necessarily have to be that in-depth. It can be something much, you know, you just happen to like somebody's music and let's do something together. mentioned that clear um from that initial uh, meeting and enthusiastic enthusiasm over the contrabass clarinet a whole series of works ensued and that wouldn't happen with every collaboration or every composer you meet and they end up writing a piece for you or you you might you know get a commission or something like that what is it about that particular collaboration with Anne or her music that really clicked and gelled with you? Well, Anne is just wild, not as a person, like, <laughs> but as an artist and as a creative artist, she's wild. Like she, what an imagination. When I heard her music, I just needed to be part of that. If I, if possible, I needed to work with her and to, to get to know her more and to get to know her mind and the way she works more. She's phenomenal breath of creative, artistic creativity. Honestly, working with Anne was one of the most annoying experiences I've ever had with working with a composer, because <laughs> it's particularly for the so for the solo clarinet piece. Like, she showed up in New York <laughs> with all these ideas of what she wanted me to do on the clarinet, and I was like, I'm, "Where have these ideas come from, Anne?" Like, because these were things that I couldn't physically do, and it's very frustrating to like be in a situation where you feel like you've kind of mastered a lot of things on your instrument, and then someone's coming up with these things that you're finding absolutely impossible. And it turns out she had bought a, like a banger of a clarinet a couple of months before and she'd spent the summer like teaching herself in quotation marks how to play the clarinet. So she was able to do all of these things on the instrument, make these sounds happen that only somebody who can't play the clarinet can do because she's not able to play the clarinet. And then she wanted me to create these sounds, but I can play the clarinet. So... <laughs> It was unbelievably frustrating and annoying. And I had to get over myself. You know, I had to be able to step out of that and realize, no, this is a huge opportunity actually to um, look at the instrument in a completely different way. to compromise in in so many elements of our lives and to not have to compromise in art is essential I think like why bother otherwise and I think that's absolutely essential when you find somebody so fiercely dedicated 
to getting their voice and their idea and their perspective and all of that out onto paper and put it, you know, out into the world through performers or electronics or whatever the medium happens to be. I think that's just something that I want to support and I want to be part of. Is that really what you look for in music that you want to play? 100%. Yeah, absolutely. For me, um, especially when being involved with contemporary music, being able to kind of identify those kind of voices. And of course, it comes in a myriad of forms, like a million different kinds of forms. And by its nature, it should, and it does. But being able to kind of recognise um, when that happens, that's that's just really something, yeah, that I want to kind of be attached to and that I find extremely exciting and rewarding. And um, that's why I want to get back onto the stage, <laughs> ASAP. And Clears, I Am Five, featuring our guest, Carol McGonnell. Finally, Yvonne, we have a short piece from Grania Mulvey, recorded especially for our recent salon, which was an online event for this St. Bridget's Day in partnership with the Irish Embassy in Hungary. And the fascinating thing about this recording is that it was made remotely with soprano Elizabeth Hilliard and guitarist Anselm McDonnell, with both musicians performing together in real time. I'm still completely amazed that this was able to happen, Jonathan. I'll be very, very honest. Uh, You know very closely the technical challenges that were involved because uh, you helped solve them. And it was a real testament to the artist's openness to take this on, I think, you know, both Liz and Anselm. And it was a real treat to hear and see it um, at the very special salon for St. Bridget's Day on Monday, the 1st of February. This event that we hosted, it was in partnership with the Embassy of Ireland in Hungary. And St. Bridget's Day is a real celebration of creativity in women. And so we had three works by women composers, uh, Anya Malin's work that we've heard uh, at the start of today's podcast and uh, Gronja Mulvey's work and a work by a Hungarian composer called Petra Zazi, because uh, this was all in partnership with the Hungarian guitarist Kathleen Kultai, who've also heard performing Anya's work. So, Jonathan, for, for CMC, you know, it was again working within the, the spirit of international partnership and the, the global community that I mentioned earlier, the global community of contemporary music and connecting musicians, uh, connecting Kathleen and Anya and, uh, and Gronja and Anselm and, and Liz, because Anselm and Liz ha- had not worked together before. And um, what was... Uh, so great to hear from um, Liz on Monday was her huge appreciation that through uh, being able to to do the recording uh, live, she had her first chamber music experience in almost a year. That was a very strong statement for all of us uh, who are working in music. And let's really cross our fingers and keep the faith that uh, musicians get back to playing together in a room. Indeed, indeed, yeah. And you can watch and listen back to the, the event on our website. Uh, and we also include a link to it in the show notes. And I should also add uh, thanks to uh, CMC composer Owen Callery for his uh, advice in, in how to go about solving this technical challenge of two people recording and playing simultaneously uh, in dif- different locations and achieving that true low latency because as we as we know zoom it's not possible to do to do this kind of thing over zoom because of the delay so here is Grania Mulvey's Carlo poem number 43 taken from her work a Carlo song cycle performed by Elizabeth Hilliard and Anselm Macdonald Our thanks to our colleague Keith Fennell for his production and editing support in this episode. We'll be back in two weeks with another one. Until then, 
Thanks for listening and stay safe. Oh,